Welcome to With Relish on the Headstuff Podcast Network. If this is your first time listening in, welcome to the show. We are a fortnightly podcast focusing on all things that are great in the Irish food industry. I'm Harry Colley. And I'm Aoife Allen. This week on the programme, we're looking into the theme of food and home. What brings people to Ireland to work within the culinary industry and how food in the community can play a huge part in bringing people together no matter where they are in the world. So on this week's show, myself and Aoife explored a little bit around Dublin. We went up to the Islamic Cultural... Islamic Cultural Centre of Ireland in Klanski in South Dublin, which is kind of the main cultural centre for Muslims in the country. We went there on the first day of Ramadan, which is a major event in the Islamic calendar. It's uh, a month of fasting. We went there for Iftar then, which was to break the fast together with the community. And so like the really nice thing about going to this place was that you're you know talking to Muslims from like backgrounds from all over the world and there's this kind of lovely sense of community within there and then everybody breaking bread with one another and it was just like a very lovely, nice kind of human event. Yeah, it was a really inter- interesting experience for us. We arrived at, I think, nine o'clock in the evening on Saturday after a long shift in the Fumbly Cafe. We a long shift in the Fumbly Cafe, but not as long as the like 20 hours of daylight, which is yeah. you know prohibiting these people from eating for the or, day. Or yeah. drinking water yeah. or anything. Yeah, absolutely fair point. <laughs> so we arrived up around nine um, just as the sun was kind of on the verge of setting. I think sundown was 9.37 that day. And you say you think you know exactly when I it was. Know, <laughs> I know that sundown you was 9.37 that, yeah. that day. And Harry and I hung around the entrance to the Islamic Cultural Centre for a while as we were waiting to see people come out of um, their prayer. prayer and go in to begin the iftar meal. And as we were in the car greeted, park, like, hanging around. Yeah, hanging around, greeted like like by so many super friendly people and people were like, yeah, absolutely, go on in and like come and eat with us. And we're like, ah, no, 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 like we just want to chat to you. We don't need to eat. And they were like, no, 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 you'll eat. We were like, okay, grand. And then the one thing I think us as kind of junior podcast makers, we found out was that we brought one Zoom mic with us and didn't realise that the meal would indeed be split by uh, gender. So men and women ate separately. So myself and Eva didn't get to hang out. But it meant that we have got lots of one sided audio <laughs> so you yeah, can, you're going to hear I, from all the gals I, yeah. I took off with the equipment uh, thinking I'd be back in 10 minutes and then was very very uh, treated with lots of hospitality and ended up kind of sitting for probably 45 minutes an hour sorry Harry no, um, <laughs> he had a great time with left, my guys. left Harry hanging while I had the crack with three young women from different parts of the world um, and then after that we went and we spoke to Ishmael who is the owner of the Golden Olive Golden which Olive. is the restaurant at the mosque which is open to absolutely everybody and serves kind of delicious Mediterranean-inspired foods as well as Indian foods. And we spoke to him a little bit about all the different kinds of foods that he's making. And so kind of, I think the very nice thing about meeting Ismail, he was able to talk about food for everybody for this mosque, this mosque, which is like open to Muslims from all different cultural backgrounds. And so they were kind of like cooking lots of food for everybody. And he was saying specifically about, you know, lentil soup is something that pleases everybody and this, that and the other. And later on then in the episode, we end up talking to Dario McCary, who is an Italian-Irish chipper owner and it was like just lovely to kind of meet and talk to him about you know his foot in both worlds you know coming from a very traditional chipper family and these families which are coming from very traditional very small parts of southern Italy um, coming over and and setting up businesses in Ireland and and, and we talked to him a little bit about that. Yeah and kind of the fascinating fact that when the first um, Italians arrived in Ireland there weren't chippers as far as he's aware or certainly wasn't the phenomenon that it became very quickly afterwards. So they arrived and instead of selling Italian food, they just saw a gap in the market for something that would really, really appeal to the Irish palate and since then have been essentially turning out the same product for... 150 years now or 170 years or whatever that is my maths aren't great well, well I, I wouldn't be able to um, catch you out on it because mine are even worse 
So in this episode, I think we're talking very much about cultural identity through food. And I actually ended up doing a thesis for that for my undergrad, a thesis which I now hate, but uh, and can't bring myself to look at, uh, not even in research for an episode of With Relish. But the story that got me incredibly interested in the idea of, of one kind of associating so much of their identity with the food of where they're from was a story by a writer called Grace M. Cho. It's called Kimchi Blues, and it was published in, I think, 2014 for a Gastronomica magazine. Grace's mother came over to California in the 1950s, late 1950s, which is so it's after the Korean War, after the, was it 62nd parallel, 54th parallel? What was the line? That was 62nd like? parallel. 62nd yes. parallel. We'll check that. The parallel. Um, after that line was drawn and, and the end of the Korean War and so an enormous amount of Koreans came over to America but a disproportionate amount of Korean orphans came over to America and so uh, Grace M. Cho's mother came over she had married an American GI she came over and they were living in Washington State and she was so far from home culturally and geographically physically everything just so far away from the world that she grew up in and here she was in America like unable to digest the food and incredibly unhappy and very much I mean not just because of the food but like a large portion of it was the food you know she was away from home and she couldn't digest anything it was sickly and she just didn't have kimchi and kimchi to Koreans is you know like I mean, I'd say tea life to the source. life source. I'd say yeah. tea to the Irish, but that's it's more than that. Yeah. You know, it's eaten with every meal, and it's kind of yeah. given as gifts. It's almost and it, medicinal. In it's a way almost as well. medicinal. Yeah. You know, it's just totally a part ingrained in the culture that every meal will have kimchi with it. And while she was living in Washington State, she she tried to track down for a very long time to find beichu, which is the Korean cabbage that's used for it, also called Chinese cabbage, but beichu, B A E C C H U, and and eventually found it and would make these enormous trips to go and buy vast quantities of this cabbage, and then she'd bring it home and she would ferment it and she would make big batches of kimchi and she would give them to her other Korean mates who were a bit homesick as well. And then a large amount of, I was saying these orphans were coming over and they were shell-shocked and they were adopted by American families and they were just kids coming over with like no clue as to where they were, what was going on. And they were just like suffering from depression, you know, and it was just like an incredibly massive leap for them to make. And so there's this kind of kimchi collective that Grace M. Cho's mother made whereby she would make these large batches of kimchi and she would go around to the houses of families who had adopted Korean children and she would go with presents of kimchi and it was just like a small reminder of home for these kids who were like so far from it um, and I suppose that was kind of like the thing I remember reading that and be like this is what I'm going to do my thesis on and then my supervisor wouldn't let me <laughs> <laughs> but the idea of being like of your food being so ingrained in that part of you that you know this was a gift that this woman was able to give to all of these kids who were around the place and it was just something small a very small token but here it was a little piece of home in a place which is mm. so alien and it's food Beautiful. So before we get on with the show, just to remind you that you can listen to and download our programmes from iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn and all the usuals. If you like what we're doing, why not hit subscribe and write us a review? And if there's something in the food world you'd like us to delve into, make sure to let us know. You can contact us through our Twitter page at WithRelishPod or get in touch through the Headstuff Podcast Network. Food has a unique ability to give people a sense of home and comfort no matter where they are in the world. During the month of Ramadan, many of Ireland's 70,000 Muslims gather as a community for Iftar, the breaking of the day-long fast at sundown. The sun sets just after 9.30 at this time of year in Ireland and it sounds like a long day without food and water for the uninitiated. 
So Harry and I went to observe and take part in the first iftar of this year's Ramadan at the Islamic Cultural Centre of Ireland in Klanski. Before sitting down to eat, I spoke to a few women about what Ramadan means for them. So my name is Alessandra. I'm half Brazilian, half Spanish. And uh, what am I doing here today? Well, basically, um, today we came together to break our fast uh, after fasting for the first day of Ramadan, which, you know, it's called uh, the whole eating scene is iftar. So that's when we sit and we eat together to break our fast. Fasting is not just fasting food. Fasting is, in Islam has so many different uh, things that you fast uh, during the month of Ramadan. So it's a month that you need to focus on yourself and your gene and your relationship with God. Like There's so many things. How can we list the things? Like You need to be careful with the words that you're using. And uh, I don't know, not, not a lot of people know that, but we fast everything. We don't drink even water or anything. It's just, and it's supposed to increase your faith um, to try and bring closer to God. So when you fast, you're also putting yourself on the shoes of people that don't have food to eat. Alessandra, if you were with your family, what would you eat to break the fast? What would you eat for iftar? Well, my family's not Muslim. Okay. <laughs> so they wouldn't be fasting anyway. Um, I'd probably be eating what we're eating right now. So basically like rice, but that's something Brazilian, like where I come from. We eat rice, beans, beef, uh, or some type of meat for mostly every single meal. That's the base of yeah. our food. And why did you choose to break the fast here this evening rather than in your apartment or in your house? I wanted to be with people here. Because um, I don't come to the mosque very often. It's kind of out of the way for me. <laughs> like being here with other people, other Muslims, breaking the fast together, it, it changes the vibe completely. When you're breaking fast at home, like, and especially in my case, that you don't have any people fasting with you at home, you don't have a family or whatever here, so it's, it's, it's good to be in the community and kind of do it that way. Next I spoke to Hayat, another woman preparing to partake in the first iftar of Ramadan, and I asked her to tell me a bit about her background. My origin is uh, Moroccan, so I'm Moroccan, but I was born in Paris, I grew up in Paris, and I decided to come in Ireland to work here as a trainee, and now I'm fasting alone, so the Ramadan for me is uh, to be with our family, and so I'm really glad to be here today. It's really nice to do Ramadan one month in a year and I think it's not enough because now we are eating but some children are not eating now so we have to understand that and that's a good way to be here today is share culture but also share good moments is your family in Paris yeah if you were there with them now what would you be eating for iftar okay so first I will start with a Moroccan soup it's called Herrera uh, it's made with tomatoes. We will make a dinner because, for example, at the summer, because the iftar it's late, we are do doing like a starter as a soup, but after it's a normal meal. The Islamic Cultural Centre of Ireland has a restaurant on site which is open to the public and serves an array of cuisines to cater for the many nationalities that come to worship at the mosque. I spoke to the owner and head chef about the preparations for this year's first iftar. My name is Ismail, it's my job in restaurant, I'm uh, owner, and I make the, the food, Mediterranean food, and Indian food, of course Irish as well, because as many people is come in different culture. Can you tell us some of the cultures of people who come here, some yeah. of the countries they're from? Okay, it's, we have a fourth one is Algerian, uh, Morocco, Tunisian, Pakistan, Irish, 
French, Indian, all uh, different uh, continents. And what food did you prepare for iftar, for the first iftar of Ramadan? This for first iftar of Ramadan we prepare salad. I prepare rice with uh, chicken and soup. I make lentil soup because everybody wants lentil soup. Uh, where are you from, Ishmael? I'm from Algeria. And if, in Algeria, what, what's a typical meal for iftar? Uh, for iftar, the first thing is a shorba, it's like a soup. And uh, salad, we have burak, we call burak, okay. like a spring roll. Like a spring roll? Yeah, oh, okay. like spring roll. So what's inside? It's inside, it depends, meat or cheese or uh, potatoes. Of course, we have uh, water or coffee or that things. We have sweet, baklava, and uh, kalbalus. They call kalbalus, small things. Small sweet things? Yeah, sweet, yeah, oh, no. sweet. Okay. It's called kalbalus. What's on the menu for the next iftar? Next iftar, we have soup. Mm-hmm. And lentils lamb, again? Lentil soup, roast lamb, okay. with rice and yeah. salad. Beautiful. We have, of course, we have some fruit, depends. Apple or bananas. We have drink, uh, French bread. That's the next one. And for Eid, for the celebration at the end of Ramadan, how will it be celebrated here? We celebrate is we make loads of food in here because it's very busy. We make outside the barbecue. Ah, nice. Yes. Barbecue. Yes. Wow. Very, very busy. Maybe six hundred, might be more than six hundred. Okay. Maybe thousand people. And what, what are you going to barbecue? What meat will you prepare for Eid? We prepare for Eid, we prepare chicken, kebab, prepare uh, burger for children. Uh, like uh, merguez, nice. we call it merguez like sausage, sausage. Yeah. 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 kifta, that's all type things yeah. for barbecue in Eid, yeah. inshallah. And um, why do people come to the restaurant or to the hall for iftar, do you think? We have two days free, no have to pay anything. Mm. It's from Maktoum, the owner of the Islamic Center, they make iftar for okay. anyone, okay. anyone, so Muslim, everybody. everybody. Muslim or no Muslim. The importance of Ishmael's restaurant for Ireland's Islamic community can't be underestimated. It's a focal point for people in the Muslim community to meet, socialise and most importantly to eat together. The Irish food industry has many notable family names, but few as easily recognised as a Macari. Speaking to us about his experience on running a family business and the rich traditions of the Irish chipper, Dario Macari of Romeo's Diner, welcome to With Relish. Hello, how you doing? Thanks for coming in. No problem. Hey Dario, I wanted to start it out with like a big one and just ask you, how is it that Italian families are synonymous with chippers in Ireland? Um, I suppose the we talked to our association here together and the story goes back to I think the 1880s. Uh, we'd... Uh, it goes that Giuseppe Chervy got off a boat and found out that people in Ireland enjoyed chips. So it all stemmed from there. Our community is from an area in Italy called Val de Camino. And basically it's kind of a couple of villages up mountains and stuff. So I think the first few came over. My grandparents came over, I think, around the 60s and would have been in Bolton Street in Dublin. And naturally they kind of grew from there. And cousins and friends and everybody came over. And it was just a, it was a good business at the time. So, you know, it uh, went from there. And so, um, how is it do you think that, I suppose, Italian families coming over to Ireland, they cooked a different food that was so different from where they were from? Definitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, th- yeah. Th- they found that spot in the Irish market where they were like, okay, we're not going to be selling 
pasta to the Irish, we're not going to be selling pizza to the Irish, we're going to be selling fish and chips to the Irish. Yeah. And I just wondered, where do you think that that came from? Where do you think they saw that? Where did they say that? Um, I suppose the Irish love for spuds is, uh, probably goes back even before that time. So um, they took it from there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it was kind of a smart uh, business sense. They, I'd say so, they yeah. They saw a gap in the market or something mm-hmm. that was there and something they could build on. The natural way things would have worked, I suppose, in the original days was a family member would have come over, he would have opened a business or worked for a cousin. So it was all kind of natural progression. Like if you were doing well, you'd find your your cousin or a friend from the local village would come over and then they'd kind of start working with yourself and then work up to there and then try and get their own place. So so it all grew quite naturally. Not unlike the way the Irish went to New York, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. In when I was doing my research, I found that that was called chain migration. All right. Yeah. <laughs> chain migration. <laughs> so I'm very well I understand <laughs> chain migration. Yeah. Were there already fish and chip shops in Dublin back in the 1880s? I don't know this. Does anybody um, know? Well, I can't verify it for certain, mm. but I don't think so. I do think they were kind of the first into the, the, the industry the way it is that we'd be familiar with it. Yeah. So, um, no, not that I... I don't think so. Yeah. yeah, okay. That's fascinating. And I wonder if you could tell us about the story of one and one. Okay, one and one. Well, the one and one basically, I think, came from the language barrier. When the Italians would have come over originally in Ireland, it's not like nowadays, I suppose, education, everything has moved on. Um, a lot of guys would be coming over from Italy and they'd speak as good English as ourselves. But um, I suppose they always had this original language barrier. They wouldn't have picked up much English and it would have been just very basic from working. Back in the days, you know, it would have been a very heavy kind of, it was all about work, really, looking after the business. It was family, everybody was involved. So um, the exposure they would have had to the public would have been just true work. So some people coming in, they say, you know, a one-on-one, I suppose, just an easy to pick up, an easy expression, rather than trying to say, you know, a fish and chips or something. and just kind of caught on from there. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, growing up in an Irish-Italian family. Okay. And your food memories as a child, are those very Irish food memories, or are they Italian, or is it somewhere in between? Yeah. I'm probably a little bit from a little bit of a unique family. My my father is actually married to an Irish woman mm-hmm. from Dublin, so um, I've got the best of both worlds. So one I would yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I've grown up with um, an exposure to both cuisines, mind you. Over the years, uh, my mother always would have leaned, I suppose, towards the Italian, towards your pastas and your lasagnas and everything like that, and. Um, even, I suppose, when I was in school, we would have made a point just to keep to, to tradition and keep the language up. I would have actually moved to Italy in probably in fourth year for a couple of months and went to school over there. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's just the, the guys just eat pasta morning, noon and night. So it's it's it's, a, it's their state. It's their spuds. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. Dario, do you eat fish and chips? Of course. <laughs> I, I, I How love, often? I, I love fish and chips. Yeah. Do you, do you eat them every day? It. Do you sample the produce um, every day that you're in? Well, I suppose realistically, I've to you know I do keep everything. I try and keep everything nice and balanced. But yeah, it, it's it's a food business and it's all about taste. Everything we do involves we do a huge amount of tasting, testing. Um, we'd often come across scenarios where something might look great, and you know you, you taste and you say no, that's that's not the one, you know. So it's uh, ultimately if the taste isn't right. Nothing else is going to work. So, yeah, no, I do. Have, uh, I'm heavily involved in the, the tasting. <laughs> <Yeah>. tasting. <laughs> That's nice. Was it kind of a given that you would move into this family business and was that where your heart was? No, it wasn't necessarily a given. And there has been quite a change in the community. A lot of guys don't necessarily just follow the path. Whereas, I don't know, in previous years or generations, naturally you'd go to school, you'd finish school, you'd work in the family business. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of people now, cousins and friends and everything they don't necessarily come into the business they'll get jobs they go on to university they get all sorts of different um, 
work for myself. Um, I would have went to college and I suppose it was probably when I was about, um, I would have always been involved working from a young age, kind of f- summer jobs, always mm. hanging around my dad, whatever. But um, the life decision probably was about 23, 24, came to the end of college. That would have been in about 07, 08, which was a great time to come out of college. <laughs> and <laughs> I suppose yeah. it was great to have the family business there and got involved. And my sister as well, who's two years younger than me, got involved also. So we've we've made a good little team. And, you know, there's, there's my father, myself, brother, sister, and we all get on. So great. that's, that's great. how it's happened. And do you have a do you have a vision for the business in the future? I mean, do you see it changing or is it something that you want to hold as a really traditional, the really traditional business that it's been so far? Like, where do you see it going or do you see it just kind of progressing but staying the same in a good sense? Yeah, no, that's, 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 that's a good question. Um, there's a very long answer to that. But we'll try <laughs> Give to it keep to us. Sure. Yeah. I want to hear no, it. It's not live before. No, yeah. where's, <laughs> where's the business going? OK, the business has completely changed. Like, we're celebrating National Fish and Chip Day on Wednesday which is all about fish and chips. Um, the local uh, takeaway chip shop has transformed now where you're getting kind of a, a wide range on your menu. You're getting your grilled foods, your your baguettes, your kebabs, your southern fried chicken, a bit of everything. And in a way, it's kind of our unique selling point in that if you're sitting down, like we, we, we view ourselves as, you know, our main customer is kind of the family sitting down in the evening, having a, having a meal together at home and... With our kind of menu, you'd say there's something there for everybody. So it isn't only fish and chips. And with all the new businesses coming into the food market around Dublin, you've now got your, I suppose, over the last 10, 15 years, like pizza's not even around that long in Dublin. Mm. It wasn't a big thing. You know, pizza's enormous. You've got Thai food, Indian food, everything from all around the world. So we do kind of need to keep up with that and, you know, develop new products. But at the same time, the tricky part is we do want to hold on to the heritage as well, your yeah. traditional fish and chips. And that is extremely important to us. Anything we do, you know, we'd always have in the back of our mind. Well, we'd have to remember we've got customers who are coming into our stores for the past 30, 40 years. Yeah. And, you know, you have to remember these guys are used to things a certain way also. So you're kind of catering for the new, the old, everybody and in mm-hmm. between. So it's it's a good range of customers. So I suppose to answer that question, what's the what's the future? The future is identifying all the different markets and trying to have something for everybody there while staying competitive as well because what's helped our business and what it's become known for is get a good a good amount a good size good portions good quality food and all for good value yeah so it's kind of a, go- a great place to feed the family mm-hmm. absolutely do you make all the chips w- tell me that process around the chips because <laughs> I'm, I'm a chip fan I need to know about okay. this chip it's important chips yes chipper chips so basically <laughs> what what's involved yeah the, the first question we actually I usually get asked is do they actually come as as a potato? Yeah, yes, exactly. They do. Cool. So um, basically, <laughs> how it works, each store orders their spuds. Um, we do a huge amount of testing. We work with lots of different suppliers. We work with farmers. We we actually work um, closely with guys in North County Dublin. They're the Flynn farmers, um, and they grow spuds for us. What it's variety of spud is it? Mm. Uh, we use a Marquis Agri stuff like that. Yeah. So it, it it is changing con- mm. constantly. It's evolving. Yeah. You know, like in fairness, even the farming industry has, has changed so much. There's all technology to come up with new ways, different mm-hmm. times to grow, all this type of thing. So uh, this, the simple process is your spuds arrive in the shop in their, you know, 25 kilo bags. They come in and every morning of your guy who comes in and he'll peel them all. And mm-hmm. in our locations, we've actually, you've got two forms. You've got your you've got electric chipper, a hand chipper. And we opt for the original uh, option of actually every spud is, is hand chipped. 
Daddy. And the reason for yeah, so <laughs> believe it or not, when you're I'm when so you're hungry, <laughs> when you're I'm hearing about the chipper, yeah. <laughs> like the actual thing that makes the chips. When when I you're eating your bag of chips, yeah, someone has physically hand chipped that chip, so you can really appreciate. You're gesturing like a lever. Is this yeah. like a big stainless steel like thing attached to a side of a counter? Is that what exactly. It is? I don't know how yeah. I describe it. It'd be fitted to something. Yeah. And yeah, it's I suppose a lever type movement. So yeah. you've got a guy literally every single spot, and it's just getting passed through and getting chipped. Getting, through, getting chipped exactly. Yeah. Good. And then what? <laughs> okay, and then what? And then I suppose that's it. They're ready to go. Class. Absolutely yeah. nothing else. So like, as yeah. I say to people, like this, your bag of chips and the chip shops, it's unique in that a lot of places are using frozen chips. Mm-hmm. So that's fine, I suppose, consistency and everything. But with us, your spot is literally getting picked in a field, put in a bag, brought into our store, Hand peeled, hand chipped. No, sorry, not hand peeled. We have a peeler machine. Don't take too long. <laughs> we know. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, brought into the store. They're chipped and that's it. They're yeah. ready to go. Yeah. And they're done just throughout the day. You know, you'd kind of, every few hours you'd be out chipping your chips, keeping them fresh. And that's why when you go into the store, you see them, you order your chips and they're cooked. Like there's nothing, yeah. no secret to it. No. Yeah. It's a no beautiful anything. thing though. Yeah. 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 Extremely labor intensive, but yeah. completely natural. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think the simplicity of that is the really attractive thing about it. That Absolutely. it's not often a scary walk-in freezer somewhere. I say yeah. scary, like they're yeah. probably, <laughs> like they're grand. Well, freezer <laughs> chips, are just they have a different texture. Absolutely. There's just, there's just yeah. nothing like yeah. a proper fresh handful chip. The, I'm into uh, that. The only, I suppose it has plenty of positives, but it is tricky because like sometimes you find throughout the year we're, we're constantly getting batches of potatoes in every week. Several batches come in and you're, you're just constantly testing and, you know, you're working with your suppliers, you're working with the farmers and then sometimes you'd have to often be reminded, you know, you're saying, well, this this one's not perfect. Why not? Mm. Why not? What's, 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 what's wrong? Why are these ones in the cooking? And they go, like, you know, we're growing something in the field here. Yeah, it's yeah. nature. It, it, it's yeah. nature, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, so um, yeah. that's a... Uh, what exactly does that remember telling you? <laughs> Yeah, I know that Talk feeling as well. Santo, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Sometimes we're kind of looking at the produce that comes in. It's just like, okay, so the crop isn't like, as healthy yeah. as you would like it like, to be, yeah. you know. The, and sometimes it's I, perfect. The one that I noticed recently that we were kind of struggling with, I say struggling, but it was just like an, an unreliable batch was cauliflower recently where yeah. it'd be enormous. I was having to yeah. chop into them and then it was It was like leaf. a pea. Yeah. It was like a pea inside. <laughs> Nothing like, in What's going on with yeah. this thing? Yeah. But then when you think, okay, well, this is like lovely and organic and I have to accept that this is the way yeah. it is so let's just eat the leaves yeah it's and in France if you have your, your potatoes it's everything like even with our veg supplier you're just talking about cauliflower there like we've our, our, our we use guys up in lavender and there's you know you have your lettuce and your mushrooms and everything and again mushrooms will arrive one week slightly bigger mm-hmm. slightly smaller so it comes down to our guys in the stores or we have a distribution center there which we've introduced to help quality control which mm-hmm. has been a, a great success and it's been a big help in growing the business but, you know, it does come down to the guys in the store having the skill to recognise, OK, no, this isn't right or this mm-hmm. is wrong. or yeah. You know, to work yeah. around, like you're working with natural to produce. Work, yeah, yeah, to, so to be intuitive with food. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's not just a timer machine where you're cutting open a packet, pouring it in and mm-hmm. take it out three minutes yeah. or four minutes later. It's, it's, it's a bit more to it. OK, great. And I wanted to ask you a bit about your extended family in Val Camino mm-hmm. and what do they think of the chipper phenomenon? What do they think? Well, uh, most of them are here. So. <laughs> 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 uh, most of them are here. We, yeah. we come from basically um, these, uh, I suppose, mountainous villages. Mundatigo is the name of where, where my family would, would have their home. And what do they think? Most guys are here. The, the village has kind of declined in population. There's not right. too many, but there's still a few holding up the fort in the, mm-hmm. the wintertime. But, uh, well, it's broad in fairness. It's given great opportunity. And yeah. it's over the years, everyone's had as, as, as appreciative of it. And there's a very, very strong link between our area in Italy and Ireland like as far as I'm pretty sure I think Casalatico which would be kind of the main town the mountain is twinned with I think it's nice 
Okay. okay. Check that one. So yeah. yeah, no, there's a huge link. They've have their every August they have this thing called Irish Fest, and what they do is they basically set up the town. They actually bring there. There are no chippers in Italy. Well, there are like you know, there's not like Ireland. You'd find yeah. A, yeah. a chip shop or a, a whatever everywhere, but there's none there. So it's not really a, it's pizza shops. Yeah. And what they'll do is they'll actually bring in a, a, a frying range into the, into the village, and nice. they have a big festival, and there's there's drinks and there's fish and chips for that. Then they come from all the surrounding towns, and I it's want to become this yeah. big thing. So, and there'd be your contingents, like you know, go suppliers who supply the industry, like would always send people over, and nice. it's become a kind of big thing. So there's there's, there's, a, there's a huge link there. Like, yeah, that so. sounds deadly. That sounds it sounds so good. Really strange. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just a completely, completely yeah. unique thing. Yeah. yeah. Dario, yeah. just to so we can situate this for yeah. the listeners, um, where in Italy are we talking about geographically? Okay, geographically, I suppose if you're looking at a map, you'd be looking for a town, I suppose, like Casino, um, where Monte Casino is, mm-hmm. World War Two, and the, okay. the big monastery on the hills. That would be the biggest local town, and in between Rome and Naples, okay. slightly inland. Okay, so um, like on the shin of the boot. Yeah, yeah, probably on the shin, um, bit higher, bit higher than yeah, the shin. Gotcha. So, uh, Dario, I have one more question for you. Do you yes. do battered sausages? And why are they so delicious? <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. We, we do battered sausages. And um, if you look across the stores, it's consistently in the top three selling items. Yeah. Without yeah, they're fail. They're amazing. Why are you they know, so nice? I, I, I don't know. Fat I don't want to divulge too many secrets. Oh. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, they're, they're just popular. Everyone seems to like a battered sausage so yeah. I suppose it's a sausage and batter there's not I much know. to it what's not to but like but then there's I a suppose. few chips as well that's yeah. right or the a chips. scoop of batter just do a few maybe. chips oh yeah you oh, have a few chips and yeah. then there's um, there's um, I suppose nothing much to it we work with uh, guys in, in Galway we work with Loch Nans there and uh, they make our, our recipe which they are instructed to keep secret mm-hmm. okay you know so yeah but it's good nice local Irish pig meat right? yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I should go and have <laughs> one Dario <laughs> 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 yeah. McCary thank you so much for coming into us on With Relish it was fantastic to hear about Italian Irish dippers yeah and yeah. all it's done has made me incredibly hungry and yeah. excited to go and eat a batch of sausage yeah, <laughs> <Thank> yeah. <laughs> which takes not much encouragement for either shush great to be here thank you Each week on With Relish, we invite someone in who has made an impact on the food and drinks industry to speak with us. To continue our theme of migration and food, we are joined by a man who is considered by many as the best in the world at his trade. Having left Belfast at the age of 23, our next guest went on to establish what is now officially the world's best bar. It is with great pleasure that I welcome Jack McGarry, co-owner of New York City's The Dead Rabbit of the Show. Jack, an Irish bar in New York is not a unique idea by any means, but what kind of separates The Dead Rabbit then from the rest around? I mean... We're huge advocates of, of, of the Irish pub, but it's been uh, widely documented that the Irish pub has been has been starting to see a decline um, in, in Ireland and, and and all over the world. Um, and, and the reason we feel that is, is because, well, first of all, the Irish pub in, in Ireland is synonymous with, with genuine world-class hospitality. However, when it comes to bridging that with a world-class product, that's where we seem to kind of fall uh, on our face a bit, um, and then when you have that in in America, you have a lot of operators uh, here who aren't Irish um, who are opening up Irish bars um, because it's essentially being pigeonholed as a, as a as a commodity type bar experience. It's a inferior product. So if you put a Guinness sign outside and you and you have somebody behind the bar with a dodgy accent and and you have a and you have those type of hallmarks that you can be considered an Irish pub. So there's nothing special about it. And I think in today's age, where Consumers are looking for more. Um, they they want to connect with something. The Irish pub hasn't really been able to able to offer that. Um, now there is exceptions, of course, uh, of course, to that. But 
where we came in is we we ran a world class cocktail bar in, in Belfast called the Merchant Hotel. When it was at itself, it was definitely the like it's we had left numerous years now. But when we left, we 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 literally left the bar with the with the title of world's best bar and. And having that in Belfast is obviously some achievement. Um, but the kind of story of the Dead Rabbit comes from the bar that we worked in, which would have been the Merchant Hotel, that kind of world-class cocktail bar, and the types of bar that we drank in, which would have been the likes of Duke of York in Belfast, which is a, just a down-to-earth Irish pub. So when it came to, to opening Dead Rabbit, we wanted to bring these two things together. We wanted to, to build a bar that was not going to be here today and gone tomorrow. We wanted to bring the Irish pub into the 21st century. And we wanted to do that, presenting it in a, in a, in a unique narrative, which the Dead Rabbit, the, the gang, the leader, and all that type of stuff really presented a wonderful opportunity to kind of bring everything together. So the thing that we seek, seek to do, and it, it kind of has that, like we were open before Conor McGregor, um, <laughs> so to kind of change the, the, the rise of prominence, you know, we're from Ireland. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we tell people that we are a world-class bar. We, we make no bones about that, um, but we try our best and work, work our tails off to, to make sure that we're delivering our end of the bargain, you know. And when yourself and your partner Sean Muldoon went over originally had you the bones of an idea put together or did you know exactly what you wanted to do with the bar at that stage? Yeah I mean we had a lot of the concept together I mean we knew that we were bringing together the merchant and the Duke of York we had the story of the dead rabbit we, we had the name obviously and we had a good lot of the kind of conceptual stuff sorted but we came over with the kind of interpretation that we would have been open within six months and, and, and nothing in New York takes six months you know it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's just not that type of city it's not, it's not the way things work so we got open two and a half years after that and that period of time was extremely difficult. Sean was away from his family and, and uh, wife and, and I was away from all of my support networks so we literally had each other to keep this this season alive. But the, the the beauty of that, like the flip side of that, the silver lining if you will, is with all that time that we were afforded, we, we worked tirelessly researching New York, getting the grips with the area that we were going to be opening and tailoring the concept so that it was 100% right. And uh, when we opened, we were 100% ready to open. So it was like we were we were, we were we were ready to go. So we had a lot of it ready in Belfast. Yeah, yeah. But it became super distilled and defined when we came to America. I read a recent quote from you uh, that said, if it's not broken, you need to keep fixing it anyway. Is that part of the kind of dead rabbit yeah. mentality that you need to keep on improving no matter what? I mean, absolutely. I mean, we have that and we have like the... the the feeling today is before tomorrow. Like we're constantly, we're constantly trying to change for the better. You know, the only thing permanent in life is change. Um, <laughs> we're all about uh, keeping ourselves fresh, keeping innovating, improving ourselves, listening to what our, our guests are saying, listening to what our colleagues are saying, and just try, constantly trying to be better. You know, and we are in an excellent opportunity with the amount of uh, feedback that we do get because having this title of the world's best bar everybody's uh, interpretation of the word best bar is different. You know, yeah. beauty is very much in the eye of the beholder. So we get an awful lot of, of feedback that a lot of it we can act on and, and improve ourselves. And we, and we do that aggressively. And a lot of it we cannot to say, well, that's just not who we are. And like, I, I agree to disagree, if, if you know what I mean. But we <laughs> yeah. constantly try to change and, 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 and be better. You know, we're working on stuff for myself and Sean sit down at the end of the year and we identify the projects that we're, we're doing in uh, the, the four quarters of the year. And we, we are comfortably... I mean, the, the budget that we set, set ourselves to reinvest back into the business was a quarter of a million. Okay. And we've comfortably eclipsed that 
like already to be honest with you, yeah. you know, with the with the amount of things that we're doing, we're still going to continue to, to reinvest in the bar, you know, because you just got to keep improving, and we really don't want to have that kind of mentality of like, yes, we're we're the world's best bar, and now we can take it easy. For us, getting to the world's best bar was always the goal. The next chapter of that goal now is sustaining that and continuing to improve. In terms of you know creating drinks and recipes and stuff like that, have you taken a step back then and kind of taken more control of the business as a whole and left that to other people, or how's it gone over the last kind of couple of years? When we started out, it was it was me and Sean, and we had this young team. Now, a significant percentage of that team, like well over 50% of that team, is still on board with us now. However, we have uh, made decisions, strategic decisions, in terms of, like, um, I heard somebody the other day referring to it as freeing up futures, so letting people move on yeah. and, and getting and getting the right people on board. You know, we have a very high retention rate at Better Rabbit, get built in excellence. We do have a great team, and I have now stepped back from the kind of research and development side of things, but we constantly are involved in, like, how things are going to be presented to the guests, the story, because the story is extremely important that we're telling. I'm making sure it's consistent with with who we are as a as a brand and a, an identity. We have taken a step back, but we're still incredibly involved. Do you think is there much of a difference, kind of, in the drinking and bar culture between back home and over in America? I spent a year there last year, and I found that it was more frequent for you know people to go in for a cocktail or a pint on their work break, whereas home you wouldn't really see that, and people wouldn't really binge drink as much. But drinking regularly kind of was a thing. Yeah, well, I mean, you've kind of summarised it there yourself. You know, I came over here and we, the Irish kind of population, have this this reputation for being fierce drinkers. And, and to me, that's a bit it's a bit of a misconception because I think the fierce drinking kind of happens, as you said, in the in the binging kind of side of things in the weekend because everybody's working so hard during the weekend and they just let it all go. Where Americans, like I was just downstairs now and we it just turned eleven o'clock or about half an hour ago, and we already had about ten or fifteen people in drinking. Um, and that's that's not an isolated incident, you know. Yeah, Americans yeah. drink throughout the course of the day, and and most Amer- most New Yorkers would drink comfortably sixty drinks a day, you know. And to them, that's considered not drinking day, you know. So the structure and the way people drink over here is just entirely different, you know. Just drinking is such so integrated in the kind of every fabric of, of of society over here. Yeah. Um, and it's just a much more like it's every day, it's an everyday type of thing, you know. Because New York is such an intense city, so what you'll see is bars tend to be busier. You see a lot more people that are in the fitness. You see a lot more people are in the meditation than you would back home because those outlets for that kind of energy or frustration like they need a lot more of it because there is so many people. In terms of the bar industry back at home, is Ireland and say Belfast in particular, is it far behind the States at the moment? Is there much catching up to do or where, where do you see kind of the future of it back here? I mean the short answer would be yes um, but obviously there's much more uh, nuance to it. The, the, the beauty of of us returning back to, to Dublin and, and Belfast, but I'd say Dublin and, and particularly the, the amount of young, enthusiastic bartenders that are coming through is, is astounding. You know, there's people that are very interested in the like learning, very interested in the craft. A lot of people attending the seminars all over Europe and, and, and indeed all over the world. Whereas back in when, when we were coming through, like I'm still only 28, so I, I don't want to sound like I'm uh, <laughs> like I'm old, but back when, when, when we were coming through, like a lot of the opportunities and stuff that bartenders have now like we had some of those opportunities, but now it's like like you're winning competitions, and some guys are getting ten or fifteen thousand dollars. You know, yeah. back then, back in my day, if you will, <laughs> that type of stuff just didn't <laughs> it, it, it didn't uh, it didn't it didn't happen. So there is a great movement happening in Ireland, um, yeah. but the the kind of disconnect is the operators in in Ireland. I still think a lot of people see cocktail bars and cocktails as like a, a as an as a novelty or as a trend. 
as opposed to like really giving it the, the intense consideration that it needs. And then even looking at Irish pub operators are his wonderful publicans in, in Ireland. But again, it's I don't think a lot of them are seeing the bigger like the bigger picture. Like it's great that so many of them are staying so traditional. But when you stay so traditional, you're missing an opportunity to kind of rule with the times. And we just came back from a from a tour of Ireland because we're writing an Irish whiskey, Irish pub book, and we visited 17 Irish whiskey distilleries and, and 50 or so pubs. And it's great to see that strong heritage that we have. But it's also concerning in the fact that a lot of people aren't prepared to kind of move like go into the 21st century and the yeah. people that have moved I feel like a lot of them are moving into a territory that is like a quicker cash getting cash quickly as opposed to doing something that is going to build organically and, and be a sustainable part of their business model so it's an interesting time like the talent is there but still has a way to go you know I'd say the bars in, in New York are much more advanced um, than, than they would be back home it's kind of, I suppose, a funny time, and you could probably count yourself in with this, where it's the first time that, you know, bartenders are kind of getting a well-known name and there are kind of celebrity bartenders and that culture is kind of evolving. Do you think, is that beneficial yeah. for the bar scene or is it a negative thing? Um, I mean, there's pros and cons of everything. Um, like, I, I don't bartend anymore, but I used to be one of those celebrity bartenders and uh, I, it, it went to my head, you know. <laughs> um, you do get to that point where you... And and, and it's, listen, it's a, it's a good thing and a bad thing. Like, when I was behind the bar, I felt invincible. I, I, I felt like I could give amazing service day in, day mm. out. But what resulted in that, obviously, I was acknowledged for my, for my talent and that type of stuff. But what happened to that is, like, I neglected every other part of my life. And you see this thing where we young bartenders, in, in, in particular, are prone to burning out. That's something that we need to kind of talk about as a side thing. Like, how, how do we kind of make sure that we're preserving the sustainability in terms of or the longevity in this industry as a career? Because the last thing you want to see is these great talented bartenders getting all this success just becoming too much and then they leave this industry and, and go on to apply their talents to a different industry. So that that is that one thing is concerning. However, looking at it on on a on a larger scale, like it is great to see that the bartenders are, are beginning to get the credibility and uh and notoriety that that they deserve. You know, we've long seen the, the chefs of, yeah. of, of all over the world getting all this celebrity status and and it felt like the bartender was relegated. You know, it was just like it, was, it wasn't a, a consequential job. Where now we're we're seeing that that's not the case anymore. You know, bartending is a craft. It requires an awful lot of uh, investment uh, of your time and, and and your resources to to get to the level that, that you need to get at. So again, there's pros and cons, but by and large, it, it is a great thing because it's bringing more credibility to our industry. That's going to raise the benchmark in terms of the talent that comes and work in our industry. So on that side, it's great, but we just need to work on like building a career, like making sure all these people know that it's a career you've got. You've got to pay your dues. You've got to start from the bottom, work your way up. You've got to know what happened in the history before you start interpreting what's going to happen tomorrow. So there's still a, there's still a lot of work to be done. How do you unwind yourself once you step outside the business? Then I run. I mean, I I work I work physically in the bar probably about sixty or seventy hours a week. Okay, um, right. And then I would work mentally. Like I would be outside thinking about stuff. Another probably twenty to twenty five on top of that. Mm. Um, but in terms of like me switching off my, my big, I have two big things well three big things that I switch off with I'm, I run all the time um, I run marath- I run marathons and ultra marathons with, with very freak- like a lot of frequency I saw 50 miles uh, back in October yeah like I run I just run all like I just came back from a from a relay a 200 mile relay race that we ran from Wisconsin to Chicago so I do that type of stuff to blow off steam two dogs of two pit bulls that I spend an awful lot of my time with and then I'm a, a massive fan of Manchester United so those <laughs> those three <laughs> things are the things that I would uh, 
used to, to kind of blow off steam, you know. So basically this whole episode is based around kind of migration and food and the drinks industry as well. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you kind of particularly miss about home apart from the obvious things? What what makes yeah. it easier for you living away? Well, I mean, the thing that makes it easier for me, I mean, a lot of my friend circle are from Ireland. So my business partner is Irish. My ex-partner uh, is Irish. Like we still have a great relationship. Um, my friends, most of my most of my friends are Irish, you know, so yeah. I still have that culture of Irishness around me and, and hopefully, as you can tell through my accent, it hasn't changed much, <laughs> so I've probably just learned to slow down um, because it is like most of my, my circle is Irish. It's not that I distrust Americans or anything like that, it's just I feel much more comfortable and, and I can take my my uh, defences, if you hold down, around yeah, Irish Yeah, people. of course. So that, like, that side of things is good. Like, don't get me wrong, I miss my father and I miss my mother and the sister and and seeing my sister's kids grow up, um, so uh, like that, that uh, every time I go back, I kind of like I, I miss that. The other thing, like the food back in Ireland, is just infinitely better. Um, you know, the like obviously there's world-class restaurants and stuff over here, but in New York in particular, everything's done to extreme. So when you come to season, it's done to extreme. Yeah. When you come to like a uh, like the the farming thing over here is extreme. So things like dairy products just do not taste the same here. Uh, chocolate does not taste the same here. So when you go back home, I love, I just love getting back, I love getting back to, to just to get some great food, get some great produce. So, uh, so they would be the types of, the types of things that I would, that I would miss. But fortunately, I get back um, probably every two or three months for, for work or for just a couple of days to see the family. So I, I, I'm, I'm, for, I'm fortunate that way. Obviously, a lot of other people don't don't get that frequency, so it's something that I'm very grateful for. I saw you were in uh, Johnny Joe's in Cushendall not too long ago as well. That'll be one of my favourite spots in the country. So I was getting a bit jealous looking at that. Yeah, Cushendall was fantastic. We met a character, uh, God, what do you call it, Randall something? That is up there. He has a, a bar, one of the maddest characters I've ever met in my life. He's about eighty. He has four <laughs> degrees and speaks numerous different languages, and he is just the grumpiest person I've ever met in my life. You know, I walked in and said, "Is this a bar?" And he said, "I suppose so." Like his, his bar was like a like a living room. You know, he was just he just hated hated people, hated customers. He owned the hotel. It said the Cushion Dunn Hotel, but he actually painted in the hotel part because he hated <laughs> like he hotel guests. Just he said. uh they keep asking for things, you know. So we painted over the hotels, and nobody says in his hotels, you know. We get people in to speak to the guys about hospitality, so I think yeah. that one will maybe we'll get him in to speak to the guys about what not to be, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Before I let you go, if we have any chefs in here, we usually ask them, do they have, you know, any guilty pleasures food-wise? Do you have any, I suppose, guilty pleasures in the drinks kind of sense of thing, or even food as well? I mean, I tend to live a very clean life. Um, I stopped drinking 15 months ago. Just don't get me wrong, I still taste yeah. stuff, and, and I'm bought in the in the research and development stuff. So I live a clean life that way. I'm, I'm a vegetarian as well on top of okay. that. So the things that I would gorge on, like a Sunday would be what I would designate as a cheat day after my long run. So not, not, normally I'll go to the cinema and order uh, a huge thing of popcorn with tons <laughs> of that cake butter on it. Um, and have a, a bucket of Diet Coke. So they, they would be, they would be my <laughs> The buckets over in the States are a lot bigger uh, than home as well. That's probably, probably not uh, rock and roll material, but that's, <laughs> that's, that's, what I would, uh, that's what I would do. And if you had asked me that question two years ago, it would have been uh, incredibly different. Well, if it works for you, it works for you. Anyway, Jack, thanks a million for joining us on the show. Yeah. We really appreciate the chat. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of With Relish. We'd like to thank all our guests for taking time out to come on with us. As mentioned at the beginning of the show, we're a fortnightly podcast, so make sure to check out headstuff.org for our next programme. 
You can download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn and all the usuals. If you like what you heard, please let us know by writing us a review or following our Twitter page at WithRelishPod. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.